We are continuing through this sermon series, Rooted, Reformed, Relevant. It is First Presbyterian Church's tagline, three weeks on what it is to be uh, rooted, rooted in Jesus Christ, rooted in the family of First Presbyterian Church, and rooted in Georgetown and Central Texas, and called unto this, this space and these people as our neighbors. Reformed. That speaks to our theological tradition. That speaks to us as a people that are, are part of the broader Protestant branch and, and come out of the Reformed tradition. There's so much that can be said, but, but for three weeks, we're taking three Sundays to look at three of the most essential tenets or, or themes of the Reformed tradition. Last week, we looked at the centrality of grace in our tradition, to be a, a people of grace saved by grace. Uh, today, a very much a cousin theme to grace, very related, that of forgiveness, as you already heard through Christina's sermon, and uh, as is talked about some in Leviticus 16, which we'll explore in the sermon. The New Testament reading comes from John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, here is the, lam- here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Growing up, I used to play a lot of pickup basketball games in our backyard, our driveway. Our driveway was made of asphalt, so that meant if you bounced the ball, it returned back to your hand, and you had asphalt immediately on your hand. Dribble, 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 and then maybe you pass, and now that person has asphalt on their hands and and yours are starting to get covered. And maybe that person dribbles a couple times and then they shoot it against our white wooden backboard. And it hits that white wooden backboard. Maybe it clanks around the rim a little bit and bounces off and and sputters over to the white picket fence on one side of our yard and smacks up against that. That's all maybe within five or ten seconds. Well, then you start getting sweaty We start wiping our hands and our arms and using our T-shirt to wipe across the forehead. Even within a 15-minute pickup game, the backboard, the white picket fence, the hands, the arms, the clothes, underneath the fingernails, everything's covered in asphalt. And it only ever spreads and deepens as the game continues. It's impossible to avoid. (laughs) That is something of how the ancient Israelite society, the Bible as a whole, the Reformed tradition, uh, certainly conceives of the nature of sin. We're not a theological tradition that believes that sin is this thing that happens once or twice or a few times here and there, and when it happens, you, you fix it, you amend it. It's more like something that bounces and immediately begins spreading like a multiplying marker on everything, and you keep playing the game, it keeps spreading. Those of you who've ever worked in in an office environment or been a member of a church, goodness, you know that a little gossip here or there is never just a little gossip here or there. That stuff spreads. It gets on everybody and everything, and suddenly you'll have two people who are supposedly talking about the deadline for a certain project, and that conversation blows up into this whole other thing because asphalt is on everything. Or in marriage, you're talking about what color to paint the bathroom. And that turns into this whole other thing with with name-calling and and hurt and and memories from, from years ago, and 
the asphalt gets on everything and everybody, everybody's assumptions, everybody's communications, and the ways we do or we don't address our texts, our emails. Sin has a pervasive viral way about it. The Bible understands that this asphalt moves not only this way, but, but, but throughout history. Asphalt cakes with layers. And so maybe you started at a new company or you joined a new church, married into a new family, moved to a new country. It, it really it doesn't take all that long to, to, to begin to see, oh, there are layers of asphalt here from previous years, previous decades, sometimes even previous generations, and they're still at play in this dynamic, right? Now, David Brooks had an op-ed a couple of years ago I found fascinating on on this front. He talks about how soldiers who've been through war, uh, some no physical injury, uh, oftentimes no significant moral injury. I saw some of this when I was a reserve chaplain. And, 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 And Brooks, he laments, you know, most ancient cultures put returning soldiers through purification rituals. The men came back from battle and the terrible things uh, that they'd, they'd seen or they, they, they'd done, or they were given a chance to cleanse, purify, and rejoin the community. Even as they knew themselves covered in some kind of asphalt within or without or both, there was a communal cleansing process. Brooks summarily writes, I wish our culture had many more rites of passage. Communal moments when we celebrated a moral transition. There could be a community-wide rite of passage for people coming out of prison, for forgiveness of personal wrong, for people who felt like they'd come out on the other side of trauma or abuse. There'd be a marriage ceremony of sorts to mark the moment when a person found the vocation he or she would dedicate life to. I wish we had rituals for naming forgiveness, a new start, a cleansing, because the asphalt, the asphalt's real, and it touches everything. And unless there is some way to truly forgive and be forgiven, communities break, churches break, people break, marriages break. Could it be Leviticus chapter 16 is one of the more relevant passages of the entire Bible? in our day and our age. It is a chapter on the rituals of forgiveness for a society. In fact, Leviticus 16 details the highest of holy days for for the people of Israel, the day of atonement, the day of God's forgiveness, Yom Kippur, which was celebrated just recently in late September this year. There's a lot in Leviticus chapter 16 on all the rituals and ways of this particular day. We can't get into it all, but we're going to focus on a couple very relevant, uh, important details. But first, before we even get to that, we need to briefly appreciate what the, the 10 days leading up to the Day of Atonement. Those 10 days were called the 10 days of repentance, which began on Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and then continued to the Day of Atonement. And during those 10 days, people would be somberly fasting and and confessing their sins as a community. 
Some Jewish sources write of these 10 days as a time when God would open up this giant book with all their deeds and thoughts of humanity right before God, and each person stood to be evaluated by God. Now, that, that may sound heavy, but, but the point is, these 10 days provided space for significant self-examination. No finger-pointing. No, well, let me tell you about the real troublemakers in this community. Self-examination as individuals, as a people. Where have we missed it? What have been our actions and our inactions this past year? What have been our, our words, our posts, our, our emails, our silence, our thoughts? How are we part of hap- what's happening way over there, recognizing that all of us are part of the asphalt-spreading equation? Can you imagine taking 10 days as the community of First Presbyterian Church, and asking those questions in the sanctuary of God. I imagine maybe days one, two, and three being incredibly awkward and silent. But then somewhere in there, eventually a few courageous souls would raise their hand and speak an honest truth about themselves about the community. And the high priest, he would hold all that was named in those 10 days. That again, perhaps sounds kind of heavy, but we should readily recognize as Presbyterians in the Reformed tradition, we have long talked about believing in total depravity, which is a term that simply means that that we believe all humans, even the very best humans, are fundamentally tainted by, broken by, enslaved by the reality of sin and so need forgiveness. And then day 10 arrives, the day of atonement. The high priest we read earlier in chapter 16 is to uh, wear very plain clothes on the day of atonement. Even though this is the highest of holy days, no spectacular garments for this particular day. Rather, he is to dress plainly because he is to be a representative of all of the people. And as a common representative of the collective, the high priest shall, we read, bring forth the live goat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. The Hebrew word for goat there is azazel. It has the meaning of to take away. It's where we get that word skateboat goat. Dwight Eisenhower once quipped, the search for a scapegoat is the easiest of all human expeditions. On one level, he's, knowing, he's naming what we all know to be true. We are pretty good at finding someone or someones to blame for the mess. But he's also pointing out that we humans, we intuitively know that sin, failure, evil, it has to go somewhere. It has to reside somewhere or on someone. The remarkable thing about the Day of Atonement is that after 10 days of repentance and the people are saying the sin, the people are saying the sin resides with us, the sin is on us, and now by way of the great high priest, they are placed upon the head of the goat. 
There was some tradition surrounding the goat about a red cord. You can only find it in in a few ancient sources, but they would take a red cord, symbolic of sin and judgment, and at the end of these 10 days of confession, the red cord would be placed on the head of the goat, symbolic of all the sin and evil that was about to be carried away. Because the next thing in the ritual for the high priest we read is to, quote, send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all the sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it there into the wilderness. Later, Jewish writings speak of the great fear that some people had about that goat loaded with all of that sin, meandering back from the wilderness into the community. Can you imagine all of that old sin haunting the community again? The old emails, the old social media posts, the old words we really should not have said, the old callousness, the old shames, the old injustices. What if all of that asphalt came sauntering back in in one large clump? So you'll read how the person who took that goat into the wilderness, sometimes they would go and find a cliff. They needed to be sure that particular goat with all of that was dead and would not return to the community. Finally, all of this Day of Atonement would take place on a particular day. Verse 29, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves any work. Because on the Day of Atonement, on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean of all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest. The Day of Atonement happens on the Sabbath, on a day when people are not to work. This is centrally important. If someone were to ask, well, how does this process work? I mean, do I need a special goat? Do I need an exceptionally great high priest? What about all of this ritual? Make sure that we are forgiven and our sin is not defining us, holding us, weighing on us, marring marring us, doing yet more damage. How do we know that we are actually forgiven and free? free with a new beginning with God and one another? And the most fundamental answer is, this all happens on the Sabbath, which means that none of your work, none of your donations, none of your sacrificial acts, none of your charity, none of it gives you anything towards forgiveness. God does the work of forgiveness alone. You rest in that. You trust in that. There's nothing else to do. Many years later, the prophet Isaiah spoke of a day when an annual day of atonement would not be necessary. He he wrote, all of we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. We've all got a lot of asphalt on us. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all, Isaiah 53, 6. Isaiah is speaking of this once-for-all-time sacrificial lamb upon whom all sin and evil and iniquity would be 
laid. And then many years after that, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming his way and cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then do you remember later in Jesus' ministry, he's standing before Pontius Pilate, falsely accused. The people begin crying out to Pilate in this uh, raucous trial scene. And do you remember what the people are crying out? Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. John 19, 15. The soldiers, during this time, they twist a crown of thorns and they put it on Jesus' head. And, of course, if you have a crown of thorns placed upon your head, you start to get red lines. And after Jesus has been on the cross for hours and breathes his last breath, a soldier jabs him in the side with a spear. Do you know why they did that? They need to make sure he's dead and will not return. Then they take the lamb away, and they put him in a tomb. When Christian churches, and especially churches in the Reformed tradition, when we put a cross at the center of our architecture, the center of our imagination, what we are naming is not that forgiveness is a nice thing, good thing to do, one of many good things the church should, should be about, but that forgiveness that newness of life and relationship, freedom, reconciled relationship with God and one another, this is not peripheral, but in fact central to who we are, what we have received, and what we are about. Because three days later, Jesus rises from the grave, having destroyed and canceled the entire power of all sin and death. How does Paul put the implication famously in 2 Corinthians? If anyone's in Christ... They are a new creation. The old is gone. The sin is gone. The asphalt is gone. The new is come. But how? How's it work? How, how do we know that it's not our stuff that still defines us this day? How do we know the lamb carries away the sin and it shall not return, but in fact has been destroyed utterly? What did we say last week? For it's by grace you've been saved by faith, and this isn't from yourselves. This is the gift of God. It's Sabbath grace. There is no work to be done to secure forgiveness. The invitation is simply to trust that, that we are not our sins, and our sins do not hold us, but most fundamentally, God defines us. God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ, and God has made us new. The Lamb has taken away the sins of the world. Full stop. So easy, right? I am always struck in church circles how we readily talk about Christians of previous generations as saints. She was a real saint. Grandpa was a real saint. Deacon so-and-so. Now there... There was a real saint of God. We're loath to use that term for ourselves. That, that's, just, that's kind of a most holy person. That feels like too lofty, too shiny, too grand a word for we the living. If anything, you'll, you'll sometimes find people in the church who are, seem far from saintly. Quite frankly, they can be filled with some bitterness and judgmentalness. 
And yet I'm mindful of Howard Thurman's insight here and his meditations of the heart. He says, you know, every judgment is self-judgment. When you see things you don't like in others, you are really recognizing there's something you are judging yourself about. The more judgments you have, the more things you feel unsettled about. He's pointing out that, yes, the saints of God do a lot of judging of one another's actions and inactions, decisions and indecisions, habits and priorities and all the rest. The judgments, they come out in the form of gossip and and words and thoughts. They don't always look like saints, these church folk. The truth is, they are saints. They are saints having a profoundly difficult time accepting their own forgiveness, their own saintly newness. In fact, the amount of judgment they dole out is directly proportional to the amount they do not know themselves graced by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Many saints still see themselves covered in asphalt, and oftentimes the proof is found in all of the finger-pointing. I think the Apostle Paul knew how hard it is for us to accept the Sabbath truth of our forgiveness and sainthood. And so when you read his letters to all these small communities, these churches in Thessalonica and Philippi and Galatia and Rome and Corinth, he always begins by addressing the people saints. First priority, central priority of most significance to all of God's saints at the church in Philippi. Even if Paul's letter eventually has some challenging words, they always do. Paul starts by choosing to see the church as God sees the church. Most fundamentally forgiven and made new, not because they're a spectacular church, but because he trusts Jesus has carried away the asphalt and now lives in them such that he is their center, their defining reality. to the saints of God and Jesus Christ at Georgetown, Texas. We love only insofar as we know ourselves loved. We forgive only insofar as we know ourselves forgiven. Yes, the asphalt is real and pervasive, but even more real is the truth that in Jesus Christ you are forgiven. The Lamb has taken away the sins of the world. In Jesus Christ, the old is gone and the new is come. Thanks be to God. Amen.